Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. We're delighted that you're here. We want to welcome those of you who are at our West Campus and our South Campus, along with you in our Converge uh, service on the property here and then out at the West Campus in the Hive, as well as those of you who are joining us by uh, live streaming online. We, uh, we welcome you and are glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, let me begin with an illustration and uh, what you may not know that goes on behind the scenes uh, week to week is uh, uh, the, whoever's preaching and who's ever leading and who's ever working on all of the uh, details, we have an incredible staff that uh, you never see. And uh, one of the exchanges that takes place is if there's any visuals that need to be prepared for uh, the screens, uh, if there's any scripture passages that need to go up on the, uh, the screens, uh, those are all prepared and they're passed back and forth between different people. Uh, if, uh, for example, this morning, in a few minutes, I'm going to show you a couple of uh, cartoon figures that uh, I put together and uh, put it in a PowerPoint presentation and then uh, sent it to uh, Lori Egner, uh, the wife of our executive pastor, who uh, puts your notes together on a week-by-week -week basis and works with us. If she doesn't have PowerPoint, she can't open my presentation and see those cartoons. Uh, it took a PowerPoint presentation to create it. It takes a PowerPoint presentation to uh, receive it, and it takes a PowerPoint presentation application software in order to project it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 2 because that little illustration is a very earthy illustration of something that is more profound, and that is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. As we look in that passage and pick up where uh, Pastor Ben uh, Fuqua led us last week, uh, the role of the Spirit is absolutely essential for us to know the wisdom of God. Uh, ben said that in his second point last week. But as you look at this passage, the irony is that what you have sort of uh, embedded in this passage is the process whereby we get the mind of God into the heart of a person so that they can apply that wisdom to their own life. And the role of the Holy Spirit is a mediator of God's revelation, first of all. As he says in the text in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? In other words, nobody knows what you're thinking except you uh, and, and that spirit which is in you. Uh, so also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In other words, only the spirit of God knows what God is really thinking, and therefore, he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things, or freely understand the things freely given to us by God. In other words, we would never know the mind of God had not the spirit of God revealed those. The second step in that process is that God the Father, as the member of the Godhead, delegated to the spirit to do the revealing work of God. He reveals that to the apostles and prophets who then have put it down in sacred scripture and therefore the spirit becomes the superintendent of inspiration. He's the uh, you know, mediator of revelation, but he is the superintendent of what we call the inspiration process. Out beside that second point, you may want to put 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.20 and 21 because uh, those passages tell us that the Spirit of God guided the human authors to write what we now read in Holy Scripture. That's found in verse 13, 
when it says, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying what we're telling the Corinthians, what we're telling you Corinthians, is what the Spirit of God gave us to give to you. And so we're taking those spiritual thoughts, taught by the Spirit, combining those spiritual thoughts into words, which words, he says, we're now speaking. And so the Holy Spirit of God guided the human author in the writing of the Scripture so that the end product, the Word of God, is the exact Word of God exactly as God wanted to communicate it to us. Second Peter says, no Scripture is of any private interpretation. It did not come by the will of man, but men of God spoke as they were carried along, literally buoyed along, it's a nautical term, as they were buoyed along by the Holy Spirit. To the extent that then Paul says in 2, Thessalonians, or 2 Timothy 3.16, the result of that is that every scripture, in Greek, passe graphe, every passage of scripture is the result of the spirit or the breath of God. All scripture is God-breathed and therefore profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, etc. And so the Holy Spirit is the mediator of God's revelation. He's the superintendent to put it into scripture but it takes the Holy Spirit to also illuminate that to us. We could never receive what God encoded through the Spirit in Holy Scripture if we don't have the Holy Spirit in us to interpret and therefore illuminate the Scriptures to us. And therefore, he's the enabler for the believer's illumination. Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discern. A spiritual person can judge all things, but he himself is judged by no one. In other words, unbelievers are not going to get you as a believer. They're not going to understand what you understand because you have received the Spirit of God, as back up in, in the earlier verses, so that you can receive the things freely given to us by God. So it took the Spirit of God to encode that message it took the Spirit of God to make sure that it was put in perfect form for us in the Scriptures, and then God has placed His Spirit within us so that we can receive that. Without the Spirit, you can't understand the things of God. And so as we come to the text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3, uh, we were reminded last week that there's two kinds of people. There's natural people, and there are spiritual people. But two kinds of people, Cody a couple weeks ago said, there's two kinds of people, those who like the roll in the toilet paper to go on the outside, and those that want it to come from the underneath on the inside. But you might be Pepsi and you might be Coca-Cola. You might like creamy peanut butter or you might like crunchy peanut butter. You might roll the toothpaste or just squeeze it. You might be an LOL person in your instant messages or you might be a haha person. Laughing out loud or ha-ha. My older son is a ha-ha person. There's two kinds of people in the world, Abigail Van Buren said. Those who walk into the room and say, there you are, and those who say, here I am. Those are two different kinds of people. Mark Twain says, there's two times in a man's life when he should not speculate, one when he can't afford it and when he can afford it. I love this one, you might have to think about it. There's 10 kinds of people in the world. 10, one, zero. Those who understand binary and those who don't. 
Those of you who laughed, explain it to those who didn't laugh. One, zero, binary, get it? And then I like this one. There's three kinds of people in the world, those who know math and those who don't. That might take you a little longer. But the Apostle Paul actually tells us there really are three kinds of people. We learned about two last week. Natural, in other words, just the way you were born, and spiritual, those who have the Spirit of God in their lives. When we come to chapter three, he's gonna make another division between the spiritual and those who should be spiritual but aren't living spiritually. Let me illustrate by these three cartoon Greek guys. I, I call them three Mr. Greeks. Uh, the first one is uh, Mr. Sukikos. That's a Greek word that means the natural man. In other words, we, we get our English word soul. He's just soulish. He, he's been created, he's in the image of God as a, 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 a creature, but he's an unbeliever, he's a natural person. And so uh, that's a person who's just naturally born, does not have the spirit of God in his life, he has not come to Christ, uh, he doesn't know the things of God, he can't receive the things of God, as we saw in the earlier chapter. Uh, Paul states that the natural man doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. As Bill was telling us, the, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that don't have the enlightening work of the Spirit of God in their lives. The, the second little Greek guy, we call him Mr. Pneumatikos. Pneuma from spirit. It's the result of having the Spirit of God in his life. And so notice this, this picture. There's a box around this guy, and then there's a box right around him. In other words, he has come to know Christ, and he's in Christ, but the Spirit of God is also in him, and he's walking by the Spirit. A spiritual person is one who has the presence of the Spirit and is yielding to the leadership of the Spirit. They received the Spirit when they were saved, as uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 tell us. Uh, they've been given the, the capacity to know the things of God, verse 15 of chapter 2. And in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, <coughs> excuse me, the last verse of the chapter, right before ours, is that they can know the mind of Christ. In other words, this person can receive the things of the Spirit of God, and they can know what God wants for their life because they're walking according to the Spirit that has made them alive in Christ. But the third one is mentioned in the opening two verses of chapter 3, and we call him Mr. Sarkikos. Uh, the word sarks is a word for uh, the fleshly nature. Uh, and so he is a, a person who is dominated by the flesh, now notice, he's a believer in Christ, boxes around him, but the smaller box is not, and the same color as the natural person. The word for uh, this word, sarkikos, in some translations is the word carnal, a carnal Christian. Carne comes from the Latin, uh, uh, carne, uh, carnal comes from the Latin carne, which means flesh or fleshly. It, it's a word that uh, means that he or she it may be a believer, but they're living like they were not a believer. They're living according to the flesh. And what Paul is going to address here in the bigger picture is that the root cause of the divisions and conflicts at Corinth was their fleshly or their carnal mindset. Now, look under number two in your sermon notes and see how Paul addresses this kind of a person. I've called it the pitfalls of defective loyalties because he's gonna come back to this issue that he raised in chapter one, the pitfalls of defective loyalties. He says, but I, brothers, notice he's addressing believers, 
could not address you as spiritual people. They were, they were believers, but they were no longer identified as spiritual. They had the spirit of God, they're in Christ, they are believers, they can be called brethren, but he says, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So there's no question they are believers who are in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me, he said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way or simply like a normal person? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? In other words, aren't you acting like an unbeliever? The invisible cause of defective loyalties, Paul says, is rooted in the flesh. Notice how he describes these people. They're called people of the flesh. In other words, it's possible to be a Christian, but not act like a Christian. All of us have been there. All of us know others who have been there. People who have the spirit, but who haven't allowed the spirit to control them. They're addressed as infants. Babies, as you know, are conscious only of their own wants and their own needs, and they're not conscious of the others, the needs of others. <coughs> Excuse me. They're said to be limited to milk, uh, milk levels <coughs> of the faith. Let me, let me illustrate this with another picture. Uh, let me show you, this is normal. Uh, this is not normal. Okay? One is right, the other is wrong, obviously. There's a big difference between being a baby, <coughs> excuse me, and acting like a baby. Uh, being a baby and acting like a baby. Uh, all of us know that babies are normal uh, and act normally as babies. Uh, they are totally dependent. Uh, they cry when they want to cry. They wet when they want to wet. They do other things when they want to do other things. That's normal and natural. But for an older person to act like a baby, we often say to a young person, act your age, grow up. Uh, you're too young to do that. Don't be a baby. Because we know that uh, being a baby is normal for babies. It's abnormal for those who aren't. Just to give you a little thought, what is milk? Well, I don't want to spoil your lunch. <coughs> Ashley, can I have one of those waters? Excuse me. Thank you so much. Thank you much. Do you know what milk is? Milk is food somebody else chewed for you. Think about it. Milk is food somebody else processed for you. It's a cow, it's a goat, it's your mama. It's food somebody else chewed for you. It's very normal and natural for somebody to prepare a bottle for a baby. This is not milk, excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> there we go. Uh, it, it's normal for a baby. But uh, if all you drink is milk as an adult, something's wrong, as you probably understand. And he says they're not ready for meat, the meat of the Christian faith. In other words, their carnality, their fleshly nature. <coughs> Give me a minute, excuse me. 
I'll be okay. It's okay. Their, their fleshly nature is dominating their lives. Uh, it impedes the reception and understanding of the scriptures, and therefore their growth is stunted, as you see in the passage, and their progress to maturity is retarded. It is spiritual regression. For a person to, by the time they should be feeding on meat and are still on milk of the word, spiritual regression has taken place. Paul states the seriousness of this more so in, in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, when he says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In other words, when you're living according to the flesh, you're not living according to God. And while you're living under the flesh, you can't even submit to God. Galatians chapter 5 We'll not turn to it, but is that is a key recognition that growing in Christ is uh, to understand that there is a warfare that goes on in the life of the believer between the desire of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. In fact, to paraphrase that, starting in verse 16, he says, walk by the spirit and you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then to paraphrase, he goes on to say, for what the spirit wants to do is not what the flesh wants to do. What the flesh wants to do is not what the spirit wants to do. And then it's very pointed. He says, therefore, you can't do what you normally want to do. You see, our default is always to the flesh. You say, I'm not sure that's true. Let me illustrate it. When somebody cuts you off on the freeway and startles you with that, I dare say your first response is not, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. I dare say that's not your first response. It's that, that natural, normal, default response in that kind of a moment <coughs> is a demonstration of what the flesh is. We always default to the flesh unless we're controlled by the spirit. And that inner disobedience manifests itself in outward sins. If the, cause, if the invisible causes the flesh, the visible effects are the fights. Jealousy, he names in verses three and four. Strife, both of those were mentioned in the works of the flesh, by the way, in, in Galatians chapter five. Jealousy is desiring the status, the esteem, or the honor afforded to others. Strife is acting out strategies to achieve advantages that you desire. Both are concerned with advancing one's own claims and interests. Both are found in that Galatians passage of the works of the flesh, as we said, which is exactly in contrast to the fruit of the spirit. You see, Paul says that those who are fleshly are no better in their actions than those who don't yet even know the Lord. They're still behaving as if they're not saved, and Paul says they're walking, literally walking according to man. They're walking according to the pattern of normal humanity. See, one of the problems with that, as it affects the church, is that carnality or fleshly living actually destroys, hinders, frustrates one's testimony to the world. See, our testimony is compromised if there's no observable difference in lifestyle. 
The conduct of the Corinthians did not distinguish them from those who are without the Spirit. So twice in verse 3, again in verse 4, Paul says, you know what? They're simply acting, you're acting like normal people, not like believers in Christ. Paul returns to that problem of personality obsession that he introduced in verses chapter 1 and verse 12, where they were saying, I'm of Paul, <coughs> excuse me, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, I'm of Peter. He comes back to that. He only mentions himself and Apollos because Peter and the Lord didn't personally have contact in Corinth in a, in, a, in a physical way. So he just reduces it to the two that have been in Corinth. The reason that Paul is uh, addressing this is that he knows there are people who are overly loyal to him and then those who were more disloyal to him because of their loyalty to Apollos and both of those are wrong on, on multiple fronts. He, he lists the name of himself and Apollos three times in this chapter, and it's very instructive in verse 4, 5, and 22, and he always changes the order. He alternates the order so as to speak into this, who's in first place, who's in second place, and his whole point is it doesn't matter. There isn't a first and a second place. As Pastor Cody mentioned a couple weeks ago, this is exactly what happened with the different schools of Greek philosophy that they would gather a following, and then that group would sort of criticize another group, and that's how you ended up with different parties and different spirits. Our U.S. knows nothing about that, of course. Obviously, we do. So in response, watch what Paul does. He pivots to suggest several spiritual principles that will, in essence, correct the pitfalls of having dis defective loyalty which leads to an unhealthy church, and he wants to correct that by having some principles of godly leadership that you and I need to recognize and practice. So look with me at the second part, and that is number three, the principles for effective leadership. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses five to nine. If the first section was correction, this is, or, or conviction, the second section is correction. Look at the passage with me. What, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Uh, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, <clears throat> Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. There's two opposite dangers, as we mentioned, with respect to leaders. One is to hold them too highly and therefore put them on a pedestal and idolize them. <coughs> Excuse me. The other is to think that they're not necessary and that they're not important at all. Paul wants to balance those two and give you a, a better path to follow. Principle number one, even the most notorious of leaders are really only servants with delegated roles. Notice what he says. He doesn't ask who is Apollos and who is Paul, focusing upon their personalities, but what are they? It's very instructive. What's their function? What's their particular responsibility? And his answer is simple and very direct. They are simply servants. Who am I? Who's Apollos, Paul says? No. What am I? What is Apollos? 
That's the better question. And we're servants of the Lord. Plain and simple, we're servants. They were servants through whom God was working to bring people to faith. The word servant is a Greek word, diakonos. We got our English word deacon from that. But the word originally meant somebody who waited on a table. It's wait staff. When you go to a restaurant, you don't go to that restaurant necessarily because of the wait staff, unless they're good and they're friends and you want to come back and have fellowship with them. <coughs> you go to that restaurant because of who's going to cook that food that you're going to eat, and the function of the wait staff is simply to make that end product possible. That's what he's saying here. What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're simply servants. What's our task? He's assigned us to bring the word of God to the Corinthians. Each had a particular task. And literally, in the Greek word, they were trusted with it by God. It was a task entrusted or believed to, literally. God believed them this task. He entrusted that, ta that task to them, entrusted them with it so that they would fulfill it individually. They're simply servants. Even the no, most notorious, the Apostle Paul, the eloquent Apollos. Not who are they, what are they? The best speakers you know, the best teachers you know, the best writers you know, the best worship leaders you know, the best uh, personalities you've ever heard, you and I ought to not ask who, we ought to ask what's their function in relationship with God. They are God's tools to accomplish God's tasks. And those of us who serve in a more public way, that ought to be our attitude as we're gonna see. Look at number two, principle number two. The gospel ministry is a teamwork endeavor. It's a teamwork endeavor. Verse six, the image of one who plants and the image of one who waters, one plants, the other waters, makes several points. First, the work of one without the other would be of no value. If you plant and don't water, you're in trouble. If you don't plant and still water, you're equally in trouble. They're complementary activities. Good illustration, it's like taking a pair of scissors and asking, is the upper blade or the lower blade more important? One without the other doesn't work. It doesn't, pardon my pun, it doesn't cut it. Okay, it takes both of those blades to make a pair of scissors. Paul was the traveling evangelist who planted the seed. Apollos was the eloquent a, a, a teacher and apologist that came and followed up that work in Corinth. It was a teamwork endeavor. One plants, another waters, he says. But that leads us to a third principle, and that is the effective results should always be attributed to the work of God. When Paul says, I planted Apollos water, ironically, in the Greek text from which we get our English text translated, the words planted and watered are in the past tense, that just simply, it happened. But when it says, God gave the growth, he says it this way, one planted, the other watered, but God was giving, past tense, God was all the while working, making sure the growth would happen. They did their jobs, but God was the one who was continuing to work. And then in verse seven, <clears throat> he changes it to, he's the one working. The present tense, he, he's the one who's at work in all of this. So effective results, if it happens, 
at all that their spiritual life and their spiritual growth, if it happens at all, if God chooses to bless it, God is the one who should get the credit, not man. So neither he who plants or he who waters, he says in verse seven, is anything. Now he's being really plump here. We're nothing, but God is everything. We're nothing, but God is everything. He's the one who opens the mind. He's the one who changes the heart. He's the one who can make somebody different. Instead of thinking, God chose to use me, aren't I somebody? The healthy correction is God chose to use me. Isn't he somebody? Isn't he somebody? Servants have no significance without their masters. They're the ones who own the fields. They're the ones who hire the servants for work. So as we, as servants, have no real significant independence except through Christ. One of my favorite parables, and you will not turn to it, is found tucked away, it's a little simple parable in Luke chapter 17, when he says, suppose you're a master, and he asks us to put on our thinking caps and use our imagination, and suppose you're a master and you have servants working in the field or tending your flock. And then he asks a series of questions. When he comes in, would he have the servant sit down and feed him first? And the answer is no. He said, wouldn't he uh, have him come in and serve uh, the master? And then after that, wouldn't he be able to eat and drink? And the answer to that is yes. Then he asks another rhetorical question. Would he thank the servant because he did what was told? And the answer really in the Middle Eastern context is no. Servants do what servants do. I'm sure none of you waited up or, or you know, went to the post office or waited for your mailbox and waited for the mailman this week to just say thank you to him. You expect the mail to be there. You don't wait to say, hey, thanks for delivering my mail. That would be a nice gesture if you did, but that's not what you normally do. And then he says this, now turn it all 180 degrees, and he says, so you too, when you've done everything you were commanded to do, now that's an imagination if you could be 100% faithful in everything you were asked to do by God, he says you're to still say we, with a group of people, so to speak, when you've done everything in obedience, you're to stand with another group of people and say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we were told. The word unworthy there is the word uh, without merit. In other words, we didn't deserve to be here. It's God's field, it's God's crop, it's God's house. If we get to serve, it's because we get to serve, not because we deserve to serve. We're unworthy servants. We've only done what we were supposed to do. Now that leads us to a principle number three, and that is while ministry is a cooperative venture, everybody will be rewarded individually. In other words, what we do is important, and God will reward that at an individual basis. When in verse eight he says, the one who waters and the one who plants are one, he uses the neuter in the Greek to indicate that Paul and Apollos have one job, one cooperative venture, that's God's work. The task, whether you, you plant or water, is the harvest. Paul uses the word each no less than five times in this passage and the one we'll see next week because the Lord will evaluate and will reward each of us according to the quality and motivations of our service. This theme will be especially discussed next week. So the principle here is that while ministry is a cooperative venture, everyone will be rewarded individually. 
But don't forget, he comes to verse nine, and here's the principle when he says, the sole owner of the ministry enterprise is God himself. He uses the term God, and he puts it first in the sentence, in each of the sentences. God's fellow workers are we, literally. God's field you are is implied. God's building you are. He puts God at the beginning of every one of those sentences in the original language because he wants us not to miss it. This is God's thing. We're just a part of this thing. We're a part of God's field. We're a part of God's uh, harvest. We're a part of his workers. We're a part of what he's building. And he uses two metaphors here, and he's going to switch metaphors for planting to building as we move into next week's text. And that is there's an agricultural imagery of planting, birth, and growth. And then there's an architectural imagery of what it means to grow up and build up, which has the concepts of maturity and ministry. So that leads us then to three questions that I want to ask as we close. And that is this, what, what work, what work has God asked you to join him in doing? What is it that God has placed upon your heart for you to be involved? Whether it's a building or a planting idea, what is it that God wants you to be involved with him in his work? It may be with children, it may be with youth, it may be with young adults, it might be with adults, it may be one of our outreach ministries, it might be our missions. What is it that God's asking you to join him to do? And more personally, what crop or fruit of character does God want to produce in me? What is it that God's about right now? Is it moving me away from my independency towards dependency, away from a pattern of the flesh to a pattern of the spirit? What is it that God's doing in you that he wants you to take another step of maturity? And that leads us to number three, and that is what's the next step of development that God has designed for me? If God's gonna use me and if God's gonna change me, then where does God wanna take me? I wanna close because I think for all of us, the humility to accept God's will, the humility to not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit, the humility to accept God's role as servant in the lives of other people is a need for all of us. There's a story that comes out of Vietnam and a man was, had received word that he had been appointed as a new position of status called in the Vietnam culture a Mandarin. He was so excited he could barely contain himself. I'll be a great man now, he told his friend. I must have a new role, a new robe made immediately, one that does justice to my new situation in life. I know the perfect tailor for you, his friend replied. He's an old wise man who knows how to give every customer the perfect fit. Let me give you his address. So the new Mandarin went to the tailor who carefully took his measurements and after he had put away his measuring tape, the old man said, there's, there's one more piece of information I need to know, sir. How, how long have you been a Mandarin? Why, what does that have to do with the fit of my robe? His client asked in surprise. Ah, he says, I can't make the robe without knowing that, sir. You see, a newly appointed Mandarin is so impressed with his office, he holds up his head high, he tilts up his nose, he sticks out his chest, so I have to make the front of his robe longer than the back. A few years later, when he's busy with his work and level-headed from the stings of experience, and looks straight ahead to see what's coming and what must be done next, then I cut the robe so that the front and the back are of the same length. Later, after he's stooped by old age, 
and so many years of weary service, not to mention the humility learned from a lifetime endeavor, then I must cut the robe so that the back is longer than the front. Therefore, sir, I need to know your seniority if I'm to fit you properly. The new Mandarin walked out of the tailor's shop thinking less of his robe and more of why his friend had sent him to see just that man. Would you pray with me? Lord, a question that all of us ought to ask is if we were gonna have a robe made for us today, what kind of a cut would it need to be? Lord, all of us default to the flesh way too often. As a result, we, uh, we, we, we have opinions that divide as opposed to unify. We have efforts to exalt some people and put down other people, which tend to divide. And we have just the natural tendency to want to exalt ourselves and not to humble ourselves. May we take the lesson of Paul who says, not who am I and not who is Apollos, but what am I? I'm simply to understand I'm a servant. And a servant exists for use by the master to meet the needs of other people. May we not miss that application for what you want to do, what you want to grow in us, where you want to take us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.